Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. If you'll open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, last week we introduced in our study, we, and we saw that Peter began with some very matter-of-fact statements about God's foreknowledge of those who were his, his chosen people. And Peter told the believers in these regions to which this letter would go that they were chosen by God and in accordance with his foreknowledge of them. And we also learned that Peter wasn't just referring to advanced knowledge of these men and events, but by a divine foreordination. And that's why he uses the word chosen. It is why Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. So, now, to put it in perspective, this was not like uh, a new coach coming to a, an existing team and saying to himself, well, this is what I have, so I'm going to go ahead and work with it. I'll do the best that I can with what I got. He did the choosing before anyone knew they would be on his team. See, God already knew this. God already chose each and every one of us before we knew the power of the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul first went to Corinth, he wasn't there long before he was rejected by the Jews. And there, he went to the Galileans and the Gentiles with the gospel. Now, during the night, the Lord spoke to Paul by a vision, encouraging him to go on with the work and not fear saying, for I have many people in this city. Well, humanly speaking, he did not yet have many people in that city. But God knew 
what he had in store for Paul. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And Paul trusted him by faith. He didn't call up beforehand and say, hey, you guys got people in that city that I can come talk to? Okay, great. I'll be there shortly. No. Paul understood his mission. Paul understood what lay before him, even if it wasn't already prepared. He knew God already prepared that for him. So he didn't need to worry about that. He was already ready to go. And as I've already noted, Peter makes no effort to defend his doctrine here. He makes no effort to defend his doctrine. He just states matter-of-factly that they were chosen of God according to his will and for his glory. So should we be proud that we were chosen for adoption by God? That's a question this morning. Should we be proud that we were chosen for adoption by God? Should we maybe be puffed up, feel real good about ourselves? Absolutely not. And here's why. We were all children of wrath. We were all dead and trespasses and sin and deserving of eternal separation from God. And in fact, separated already and without hope. That's where we stood. But listen to Paul writing to the Ephesian Christians when he talks to them. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, and according to the prince of power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them were two all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... And because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So rather than being puffed up and proud that we are saved and, and we're going to heaven, as a church in our society has definitely acted in a way that often dictates that. That, oh, because I'm a Christian, I'm saved from my sin. And because you're not a Christian, you're not saved. We know this to be true. Because this is the truth that God has given us. But does that give us the right as a Christian to extol upon another and say, you're not worthy to stand before me because you're a sinner. You do not know God. And I know most of you are sitting there saying, well, of course not. But is that not exactly how many Christians today act? That we think we're better somehow because we know something they don't? What has God said about that knowledge? What does God say that we should do with the knowledge that he has given us as a Christian? We tell others. 
Is it for our benefit? No. It's for God's benefit. Rather than being puffed up and that we're saved and we're going to heaven, we need to be showing grace. We need to be showing people grace. It's like the song, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We should be lowering ourselves so that God can be glorified. Lowering ourselves so that God can be glorified. Listen, think about those t-shirts and those bumper stickers that we have all the time. Now, I'm not necessarily knocking them because I have a few of them. Except that I think that bumper stickers devalue a vehicle once they start looking torn and faded. But I, again, I do occasionally wear the shirts on occasion. I have no place to criticize that. But I'm asking that we please think about what we're putting on our cars and what we're presenting as we go out into the world. We need to know what kind of message we're sending. And some of the things that make a simple statement of truth that might make another person think and might even inspire comments so you, you can get a conversation started. And we've seen many of those kinds of things. But many of them might sound sarcastic. They might sound judgmental and they, they sound haughty and they tend to only intimidate and insult rather than help. Let your life and your words be your testimony. Wear the shirts, but please don't let them do your witnessing. Let them see the truth. And we know that words only go so far. God says we can take the words. We can take the knowledge. But what we do with it is our gift to God. Is our worship to God. Is our demonstration that we are for God. And God is for us. A popular bumper sticker some years back said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. As Christians, we know that was supposed to be more of a confession and an encouragement more than anything. It was trying to say that we don't think we're perfect. We only rejoice that in our imperfection, we are forgiven by God. But I actually heard a non-Christian who read that sticker and say, well, that's just arrogant. So you're forgiven, and I'm not. Well, whoop-de-doo. Do you see the negative connotation that comes with this? All, too often times as Christians, we present ourselves in a way that is not looked favorably. And why wouldn't they think that way? Christians in today's society are looked at as hypocrites, and we're not giving them any reason not to believe that. Well, I've harped on stickers and shirts long enough. But the fact is that the church as an organization has been pretty inventive in the ways that she has found to send the unchurched masses the message that Christians are just better people. And because of the things that they do are not as good and therefore deserving of rejection by us. But that's not our job. We know that's not our job. 
And there is apparently a widespread ignorance throughout the church of Jesus Christ of what scriptures are really saying about us. Of course, we're going to be haughty if we go along with the thinking that we are saved because when we heard the gospel, we lifted our noble head. Or we shot a clean, well-manicured hand in the air and proudly declared, oh, sign me up. Sign me up. I want to be a Christian. But perhaps the reason people aren't responding to us like the first century Greeks did when they responded to Paul and the other apostles is because we're not making it clear that salvation comes to those who are recipients of God's mercy and grace alone. It has nothing to do with what we do. Now, okay, some responded well, and some responded badly. The apostles suffered for telling the good news, but at least they got some response. Are people doing anything but ignoring us? Probably not, because very few of us would be willing to be beat up by 10 for the sake of one soul being saved. So what does that mean? How do I live for the sake and allowing God to show his mercy and grace? Well, let's get into the text this morning. After his initial salutation in verses 1 and 2, Peter breaks into an anthem of praise to God. He just can't wait. He's so excited. He's, he's ready and willing and he's letting God lead the way. The Holy Spirit has completely encapsulated him and he's ready to preach. He's ready to teach. He's ready to allow God to work through him. So he's full of praises of God and he's about to tell us why. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now pause and think about that word mercy. And I know Pastor Martin and I have preached on this many times. What is mercy? Now we just heard in those verses from Ephesians when Paul said that God made us alive together with Christ because he is rich in mercy. Peter is saying the same thing here. But first, let's briefly go to Romans chapter 9. I know we're going to Romans. But you should know where it is now, right? Romans 9, and see it there. It says, what shall we say then? There is no just injustice with God, is there? May it never be. In verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then in verse 16, so then... It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So you see, in our backwards thinking, we want to challenge the very idea that God is just in choosing some and rejecting others. And this is sinful thinking and according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. Because the response that should come from us would be amazement that in his mercy, he would save any. That he would save any. Who are we to be saved? 
Who are we to be in the graces of God? Has God chosen to predestine some and then call and justify them and then glorify them? Yes. Yes, he does. And in accordance with his great mercy. Not because he was somehow required. Not because we have a right to demand from him some behavior in accordance with our twisted assessment of what is fair and what is not. But because he is great in mercy. Now listen, mercy is not the same as grace. Completely different concepts. Because grace has to do with guilt. If you have offended me or sinned against me in some way, I forgive you unconditionally. Then I am being gracious. That is grace. Mercy has to do with looking on someone's misery and caring for them. Helping them. Lifting them up. Showing compassion. One commentator said that God's mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory. And God's grace takes him from guilt to acquittal. Therefore, when Peter says that God the Father, according to his grace mercy, caused us to be born again, implies the fact that we needed mercy. We needed mercy. Kurt Paul Richter was a Harvard and John Hopkins educated biologist, psychobiologist, and geneticist who served for many years as director of John Hopkins uh, Psychiatric Clinic. He served there until he became a professor of psychobiology in 1957. He made many important contributions to the fields of biology and psychobiology, and one of his most famous experiments involved drowning rats. Pleasant, right? Drowning rats, a study which today would most likely land him in jail for animal cruelty. But he knew that rats had a reputation for being able to swim exceedingly long periods of time in excess of over 50 hours. I don't know if you knew that. Yet when he placed rats in a tightly confined bucket of water, they quickly discovered they had no means of outlet, no means of relief, and literally gave up. They literally gave up, allowing themselves to simply sink to the bottom of that bucket, drowning, and on average within about 15 minutes. He knew they had the physical ability to continue swimming much longer, so concluded that they must have felt helpless and hopeless. And so he tried again, this time pulling the rats from the water once he saw them beginning to struggle. And he let the rest he let them rest for a short time before returning them to the bucket. And they once again began swimming, testing the confines of their surroundings. But instead of giving up and allowing themselves to sink and drown, they kept swimming and swimming and swimming. And many swam up to 60 hours until their bodies could simply no longer endure. So what was the difference between the two groups of rats? Well, he concluded the difference was hope. The difference was hope. And that feeling of expectation, 
that a particular particular outcome or desire will come to pass. To, in other words, look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence. They became confident when they were allowed to explore their environment. Much like we get to in our Christian walk. When we explore our opportunities, when we explore what God has laid out before us, we have hope. We don't see hopelessness. We know that God has got it handled. And hope is an amazing motivator. And when it is well-placed, it is a lifeline. Now, to the Christian who has placed their hope squarely in the promises of God, our feeling of expectation is much more than just a feeling. It becomes much more than a feeling. It is an assured confidence and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. It is the knowledge and confidence in Christ's finished work on our behalf that ultimately result in our salvation and eternal life. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And for this light momentary affliction, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that we are seeing are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned for us this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Life gets hard. Life gets hard. You may feel hemmed in on every side with no visible means of escape. Your body, not to mention your mind and spirit, may just want to give up. You may just want to give up. But in the immortal words of Disney's Dory the Fish, keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. Allow the assured promises of God to keep you motivated. Be motivated. Death will be swallowed up in life. He has given you his spirit as a guarantee of salvation and glorification which is to come. Now going back, we were miserable. We were in misery. We were in a position of needing compassion and help because We too were also lost at one point. And we were without help. And we were without hope. We were not deserving in any way, not to any degree, did we merit his favor. He showed mercy simply because he will have mercy upon whom he wills to have mercy. In other words, we're born again. And now according to his great mercy, and listen to the wording here, he causes us to be born again. He caused it. If you go to Ezekiel 37, you'll see that God puts a question to the prophet as he stands in the valley of dry bones and asks, Son of man, 
Can these bones live? The prophet isn't stupid. He knows enough not to answer. But not to answer according to his own knowledge. He says, O Lord God, you know. That's a smart man. That is a smart man. O Lord God, you know. He didn't rely upon his own knowledge. He knew God knew, and that was good enough. But here what comes next. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus, used this term, born again. And it was sometimes rephrased it as born from above. Did any of you cause your own birth? Weird question, right? Did any of you cause your own birth? Did any of you have any awareness at all? And the answer, of course, is no. You were born of the will of man according to the flesh. In like manner, you were born according to the will of God according to the Spirit. And it's what John was talking about in chapter 1 of his gospel. But as many received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In all the places in Scripture where someone is given life, not once do you see them asking for it. In every case, whether they were born in the flesh or brought back from dead, it was always by the will of God entirely. So he caused us to be born again. And when he says born again, he is referring to regeneration. We were born from our mother's womb. But it is God who causes us to be born the second time spiritually. And this regeneration results in us receiving that living hope. The fallen world has no hope. When they say they hope for something that is not in the sense of looking towards a certain end, it is more of a wishful thinking. I hope I get that promotion. I hope the lab results are negative. We're hoping for a boy this time. You see, believers in Christ have a living, enduring hope. Like Hebrews chapter 1 says, we have the assurance of what we hope for in the exercise of faith. So what gives us this assurance? What makes our hope a living one? It comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where we get our hope. That's where it is found. Christians, everything said before and everything that will come after is solid, it's solidly founded on this. The central message of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said to the Corinthians, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. 
And all of this means absolutely nothing if Christ was not resurrected from the dead. It means less than nothing. It means we are all deceived and headed for a great disappointment. Because if he is not raised, then none will be raised. Of course, the opposite of this is, if he did rise from the dead, then our hope is absolutely certain, isn't it? Our hope is absolutely certain. If God raised him from the dead, his life is assurance of our life, and therefore of everything he has promised. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul went on to declare triumphantly, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And that is why we have a living hope. That is why we look forward with a settled conviction within us, a certainty of faith, because we know what comes next. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you and for me and to anyone else who puts their trust in Christ Jesus. But listen, it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Most of you know that when you purchase a new car and then you drive it off the lot, that car is now used. You cannot resell it as a new car. Most of you know that. Its value has immediately diminished and it can never be sold as a new car again. We all know that everything in this world is perishable. We know that. Everything is defiled, stained, polluted by sin. Romans 8.21 tells us that the creation itself is in slavery to corruption. Everything of this world fades in its own way. You can spend a ridiculous amount of money on a designer purse, sweater, and with continued use it will grow old and faded and perhaps torn or stretched. You can build a new house and it won't be too long before you're replacing things. First the light bulbs go, then the washers and the bathroom and kitchen fixtures, eventually rain gunners, sprinkler heads, small appliances. I can go on and on and on. And if you're a homeowner, you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. As time goes by, you'll hardly be able to keep up with the decay. And you all know what that means. But you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead ensures for us an inheritance in the heavens that is not the least affected by time or by sin because it is reserved for us in a place where time does not apply and sin cannot go. So reserved in heaven and protected by the power of God, how much more secure could that possibly be? Now, before I go on, I just want to make a quick reference to the phrase in verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, if you are a Christian, you are already saved in that you are 
delivered from the penalty of sin. Remember Romans 8 verse 1? I pounded in your head. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perfect timing. There is no penalty for those who are in Christ because the penalty was already paid in full when God judged sin in the body of his sinless son on the cross. Period. So you are saved. You have experienced salvation from the penalty of sin. And there is another sense in which you are being saved. And it's an ongoing process. Since you are saved from sin's penalty and since the Holy Spirit lives in you, he continues the process of sanctification, which is a perpetual cleansing from that sin. And it is also a deliverance from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. It no longer controls you. You confess your sin to God and he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of sin and cleanse you from that unrighteousness. And what Peter makes reference to here is the final deliverance from the very presence of sin when you are taken to heaven and you are glorified, never to suffer the presence of sin again. It is your final salvation and it includes not only deliverance from the presence of sin but also gives you the receipt of the rewards waiting for you and all you have believed our inheritance will only then be fully complete when Jesus has returned and all who are his will receive the rewards at his judgment seat this is as certain as all the rest that have been talked about here today. That is a certainty. But Peter also says that we must rejoice in the fire. We must also rejoice in the fire. In this you greatly rejoice. The term indicates an abundance of happiness. And the language guys say that it conveys the notion of a continual joy and happiness. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So right here in the middle of all this talk of joy and security and unfading inheritance protected by the power of God is this one line or reference to their suffering and their testing. Christians, you can have happiness even in the midst of all the trouble that comes in your life. And when you remember, and when you remember what God has brought forth and established by his own hand and is preserved for you through the erection of Jesus Christ, how can you not have hope? How can you not have faith? This is why even in the process of his own trials, Paul was able to assure the Corinthians with these words. And it's in Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For 
momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Notice he says momentary light affliction. I don't know about you, but when I go through my trials, I don't see it as light. I don't see it as a light affliction, but that's what Paul is saying. The things that we experience here in life are so (laughs) minimal compared to what Christ has done for us. That it should not bother us. That we should rejoice while we're going through those trials. Because we know that through those trials, God edifies us. God allows His will to be done. God shows off, if you will, in saying, look at my son and daughter, look at my brother and my sister. Even though they go through trials, they still love me. They still believe in me. They still follow my commandments. We should be glorifying God in those things. So if we have to go through momentary light afflictions to serve a God who has given everything to us, I say, bring it on. I say, okay, God, let's do this. Momentary light affliction. Even though he was beaten, he was whipped, shipwrecked, imprisoned, starved, humiliated, and rejected by his own kinsmen, for the same reason Peter said, for a little while, this too shall pass. They both knew that anything the world can dish out is temporary. While the faith we have is more precious than gold. And in gold itself will pass away, but our faith will not. Can they ever hope to extinguish our faith? Can they hope to deny us what God has provided by his own hand? Can they take away what Jesus has purchased with his blood? Of course not. So what will be the ultimate result of the trials that come against us? Not the world's purposes, but God's. His will be done. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what is to come. So don't get discouraged. God is looking forward to giving you the rewards that he has reserved for you. He is desiring to praise you as a good and faithful servant who has endured that fiery trial and thereby had your faith proven and perfected. He has promised to give you glory and he will indeed glorify you in his kingdom forever. Forever. It is a sure and certain thing and cannot fail. It cannot fail. So I say this, and a lot of people say seeing is believing. I say no. Believing is seeing. And I want to close with just a few words about verse 8. Peter says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. This is reminiscent of Jesus' words to Thomas 
when Thomas had insisted that he would not believe Jesus was alive unless he touched his wounds. And when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, Blessed are those who did not see and yet have believed. Listen, Christian. You are saved after believing in something you cannot see. You do not insist upon seeing before you would believe. But you can rejoice in this today, can you not? God is a rewarder of faith. When you believe in what you cannot see, you will eventually see what you have believed. So in other words, God is telling us, hang tough. Keep swimming. When you are in the midst of your various trials, keep reminding yourself that they are only purifying your faith. As the fire causes dross to rise into surface and purify the gold. And we are gold to God. And he is purifying us. That is the purpose of the trial. To purify and perfect us. So that others will see him and see his glory. Keep reminding yourself that you didn't choose God. He chose you. And he sent his son to be that propitiation for your sins. And having done that. Having done that, even if that wasn't enough. He sent his son to die. And if that wasn't enough, he raised him up on the third day. And because he lives, you too shall live. Keep reminding yourself that the God who did all that without our seeking or desiring him has also said that you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance safe in his storehouse until you get there to receive it. And it delights him to praise you for your faith. Honor you with your rewards. Glorify you so that you might be just like Jesus. And then keep reminding yourself that because you have believed without seeing you have his promise that you will finally see what you have believed and even your joy itself listen to this even your joy itself will be glorified amen Dave is going to come lead us in our benediction always be encouraged by God's word. Always be encouraged by God's truth. It is there for everyone. But it is also our job as we are navigating through this earth. We know that this is not our home. But in the meantime, God has called us to a purpose. In the meantime, God is purifying you and edifying you in his service. Because he desperately wants to give you those rewards. He wants to glorify us for having faith. Together. Let's stand together. And it's, the phrase, I've, I've never really considered it that way, but God praises us for our faith. And may we praise him because he simply is as we close our service. Praise God from whom.
Heavenly Father, thank you for our time here this morning. Thank you for the promise of your truth. Thank you that we can rely upon those promises and know what lies in store for us. Lord, we know as Christians that believing is seeing. And one day, and one day soon, that will come to fruition. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. And for us to have the knowledge to know the difference between the two. And Lord, we didn't deserve it, but you gave it anyway because of that great love you have for us. Let us in our service to you be our gift to you and our love and our way of showing that even though we don't see you, we know you're there. We know that you're working and we praise you for it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.